0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Midden here with senior reporter Michael Igo to talk about development assistance as a tool for combating violent extremism. Michael, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me, as always.
0: So, I'm really excited for this conversation because this is such a complex topic, and obviously, something in the United States that I think a lot of people, even people who aren't in development, are thinking about. Um, You published a story earlier this week on the 20th anniversary of the embassy bombings in Tanzania and in Kenya, really looking at that as a jumping off point for this conversation about the role of development assistance. Why start there?
1: Yeah, Um, well, thanks for doing this. I agree, it's a a fascinating topic and and one that has sort of applicability, not just in development, but throughout conversations about US national security and connects domestic and international concerns, so I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, Yeah, so the 20th anniversary of the the Nairobi and Dar es Salaam bombings were on Tuesday this week. And I think I wanted to highlight that event as a jumping off point because um, everyone looks at 9-11 as the the beginning, but this was a huge catastrophe. I mean, it was, you know, close to 5,000 people were injured. Over 200 people died. It was an attack on U.S. diplomats posted overseas. And I think the interesting thing to me about it was that where 9-11 obviously was an attack on U.S. soil, and that raised its own particular concerns about uh, the United States' vulnerability to things that were happening in other countries, this was an attack that took place in developing countries um, and on diplomats and personnel at embassies located in developing countries who are trying to do their work there. Um, And so, you know, to me it was sort of a a window to look at a lot of issues and concerns uh, that continue to this day, not just violent extremism and terrorism and those issues, but also Things like the security of people who are posted overseas and how that connects up with some of these broader issues.
0: You know, in in the beginning of your story, you really do an amazing job of framing up exactly what was happening in that moment. You were drawing on an oral history. and it really occurred to me that there are a lot of parallels to, I mean, did I say the word? Benghazi of... You went there. I, I went there, and we're not going to go down that path. <laughs> but there was, you know, someone who is in charge of a country team meeting who had been, you know, trying to get more support because they felt security was in jeopardy in this embassy. You know, they just were getting kind of these threats and not sure how many alarm bells to ring. It was It was sort of hauntingly similar.
1: Yeah. Yeah. um, No, you're right. I mean, well, first of all, just a quick shout out to this oral history project that was an incredible resource to discover. I mean, this was an interview conducted over the course of a few days with uh, Ambassador Prudence Bushnell, who was the U.S. ambassador to Kenya at the time. Um, Just this exhaustive interview that went into detail about her entire diplomatic career, but really zoomed in on her experience um as the ambassador at the time of the nairobi bombing um so first of all just from sort of a reporting and research perspective that was an incredible thing to find and then there were obviously a lot of accounts from sort of fbi sources about um you know how the actual attack was planned and perpetrated that i was able to draw and to sort of reconstruct that narrative um but yes you're you're exactly right i mean These are issues that we've heard a lot about. This is someone who was trying to raise concerns for a long time about her perception that employees at the embassy um, were not being properly attended to in terms of their safety and security. Um, So certainly an issue that that resonates and has continued to be on the agenda.
0: So of course brings up a lot about security, but on the development side, how did that kind of, how did this instance flip the switch in terms of looking at development? Is so, a priority here? Yeah,
1: I, I think, well, first of all, you know, these embassy bombings, I think, were, were sort of the, should have been the wake-up call that 9-11 really became. Um, but what they did, in terms, of, in terms of public awareness, they, but what they did was they brought about a lot of action at sort of the government and national security level. And so it, it's a good way of putting it, what was the, the switch that they flipped. I think what it was, was really amping up partnerships between the United States and host countries, you know, in this case, for example, Kenya, um, to put, to make terrorism a joint uh, priority, and one that they were focused on, on working on together. Um, So you started to see a wider number of countries sort of come into the orbit of this U.S. foreign policy priority. There were a number of uh, programs created in the wake of the the embassy bombings, anti-terrorism programs um, that these developing countries became a part of, and that established a relationship um, or a whole set of relationships between the United States and countries where terrorism and violent extremism were considered to be um, potential threats and issues that they needed to deal with. So, you know, things like training and equipping uh, security forces, um, in some cases sort of intelligence services. Um, A lot of this early work really focused on kind of the law enforcement, tracking, identification, and apprehension of potential um, terrorists and so that's what really started at that point
0: so are we just to be clear are we talking about using development assistance for like governance programs not yet okay yeah
1: so, so this what is was kind the of evolution the, there this is sort of the evolution that I looked at and the evolution was from looking at um, violent extremism as a sort of issue of criminal enforcement Um, to looking at it as a development issue. And what was really interesting in the reporting was to come across a number of people who are now involved in what we call countering violent extremism, which is kind of the more sort of, um, you know, the softer side of this security priority, the more sort of development-oriented set of solutions. A number of the people that I talked to who are involved in that now started out more on the enforcement and criminal prosecution side of things. And what they started to, to see or to realize was that they were just kind of chasing the issue over and over again. So I talked to um, a woman named Kimberly Field at Creative Associates, a major USAID contractor, um, that's really sort of diving headfirst into um, CVE programs. She was, came from a military background and made the point that you know, over and over again, um, the US military and its country partner militaries um, we're sort of killing the number two person in all of these terrorist organizations, and they just kept doing that over and over. Um, and at some point, a lot of these people just became frustrated with the inability to sort of break that cycle and to deal with the issue of violent extremism in a more proactive and preventive way.
0: Sure, because it feels like if you're, you know, putting dollars towards things like security or things like building police forces. You know, those are kind of external factors that you are imposing on a problem to make it not a problem. Whereas, when we think about traditional development assistance, it's trying to tackle the root issue. Um, you know, before reading your reporting, I realized that I had this sort of assumption or I held this assumption about extremism, where you know people don't become violent extremists if they're happy. You know, happiness has a lot of underlying economic indicators. So maybe if you, you know, if you put money into an economy and there are more jobs and there are more opportunities for people, they won't become extremists. Yeah. After reading your reporting, I'm realizing that that assumption is probably incorrect. And it sounds like that is something you found in your reporting um, that is not correct. Can you delve into that specifically, this idea that more jobs will combat extremism? Yes
1: first of all, you're in good company and holding that assumption, because that was sort of the bulk and thrust of U.S. countering violent extremism efforts um, for the first several years that we were doing it. And that was the assumption that, you know, and I think we still hear this a lot today that, you know, oh, it's young people who don't have jobs, they don't have anything better to do, so they join a violent extremist group.
0: Well, I remember Occam Steiner, the head of UNDP, listening to him give an interview where he was talking about a UNDP report on this topic and he made the point that extremism is rooted in hopelessness.
1: Yes. Anyway. And I, I don't think in my reporting I, I haven't found anything that really challenges that conclusion. But what, it, what the research that's really emerging, I mean, this is an emerging field and that's why it's been interesting to write about. Um, what the research says is that hopelessness is more than just whether or not you have a job. You know, it's, it's based in a, a much sort of deeper um, set of relationships between an individual and the society in which he or she lives. So let me, just on the jobs point, um, yeah, that was really kind of the, the approach um, in the early years, 2005, 2006. Um, you know, look for communities or regions um, where there are lots of young people um, where there is known to be some sort of uh, violent extremist group operating or having some sort of contact with these places. Um, and that's you know those are the factors that would sort of designate places as of, of national security interest to the United States. And then do a jobs program there and employ as many young people as you can so that they have a job instead of you know, becoming a violent extremist. There's something, I know, but there's something, you know, there's there's a logical um, jump that you can make there, but in retrospect, when you sort of put it that way, it seems a little suspect.
0: Yeah, I think like like most things that long-term may not end up being solutions, it's something that kind of comes out of an underlying assumption and sounds right, but in practice. I mean, thinking about what this actually unfolds as, Yeah. you know, especially yeah. if you're talking about some areas like, You know where there have been U.S. interventions, and then the U.S. is like, oh, you know, people are unhappy and becoming extremists because they don't have jobs. So we're going to continue to intervene and give jobs. This feels like a sort of colonial and problematic dynamic.
1: Yeah. So now you're opening a whole can of worms, um, which is why this reporting, this topic, is so interesting because it it just pulls in all of these different issues related to, you know. U.S. national security policy and all kinds of things like that. Let me just, on the job point, let me make a very um, just sort of brief remark. So um, the organization that's been doing a lot of research into this and to looking at sort of the correlation between economic development interventions and violent extremism, although even the word, the phrase violent extremism now, you know, a lot of people take issue with that and are looking more at sort of political violence as the, the thing to be focused on. Um, the organization that's doing a lot of that research is Mercy Corps. Um Interesting. Yeah, and they're interesting because, you know, this is a well-known humanitarian and development organization um that um is sort of both responding to a US national security priority but also trying to bring um a lot of analytical and um critical research to that. So it's been an it's an interesting um dynamic to to watch, but they conclude in this report that they put out a couple of years ago that there is quote No relationship between joblessness and a young person's willingness to engage in or support political violence
0: Wow, so what did they find a correlation elsewhere?
1: Yeah, so the second part of that (laughs) is that the principal drivers of political violence are rooted not in poverty but in experiences of injustice and injustice often comes in the form of discrimination, corruption of the government in the places where they by the government in the places where they live, um, and or abuse by security forces. And so, if you start to imagine what some of the dynamics are in the places where these countering violent extremism um, programs might be operating, the picture gets very, very complicated, right? Because you have um, potentially the United States coming with a lot of military and security support to a country um, that probably, given the places where um, violent extremism and political violence are the greatest problem, um, probably has weak institutions or problems with um, responsiveness to one facet of its population, uh, which creates feelings of grievance, avenues for corruption. Um, So on one hand, you've got West, the United States sort of as a you know catch-all term for a lot of Western governments um, providing support to those host governments as sort of partners in national security um, and then subsequently those same governments not really fulfilling their obligations to a subset of their citizens who are motivated to political violence by feelings of injustice so there's a bit of a cycle here and I think um, for that reason a lot of the people who work in this Field or who are working critically on research about this field um, are really pushing for quite a bit more introspection about the roles that all of these different actors are playing.
0: I I imagine so, especially because when you're talking about something that's both kind of cyclical like this, but also injustice is not... Are people living above the poverty line or not I mean just measuring what injustice means and what it means in a specific context I imagine would be really hard especially if you're talking about a measurement and evaluation program to try to find roots of violent extremism
1: yeah and violent sorry and violence is not always violent extremism so that's like one of the big criticisms here is that looking at this as purely a sort of violent extremism problem is just breaking off one small piece of a broader sort of context of of violence, um, some of which is, you know, the result of people feeling that they've been, um, that the state is committing injustices against them. Some of the violence might be perpetrated by the state itself. So looking at all of those dynamics holistically um, is what, uh, I think those who, who view kind of the CVE specific programs as a bit of a questionable um, undertaking think that we should be doing
0: Something that also featured heavily in your reporting is um, just how complicated CVE programming is for development organizations and how you know, not everyone is just jumping on the bandwagon to try to really explore this issue um, you know can you talk a bit about why that is? And I just have so many questions about this.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, should, I have to admit, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I was sort of drawn to this topic. Um, within the humanitarian and, and development community, I think there's an interesting debate about what is appropriate in terms of taking on countering violent extremism work. And there are some humanitarian organizations typically the ones that don't f- completely rely on U.S. government funding, um, who, you know, say that this is not something that um, that they want to be a part of, and they point to sort of their principles of neutrality and independence and, um, you know, raise concerns that when you're starting to, to say that violent extremists are the problem and, you know, the U.S. government is going to come in and counter violent extremism, that that's something that looks a lot like Um, being involved in a military sort of campaign or or aligning yourself with military interests. Um, But then on the other side, there are very reasonable um, points being made that, you know, humanitarian and development organizations are committed to addressing extreme poverty. I guess what, one of the drivers of extreme poverty is violence. And, you know, a huge, a growing portion of the people who are living in, in extreme poverty are living in places that are conflict affected, so if you want to be engaged in that work, you can't really ignore the fact that this is going on. Um, so with all of that said, yes, there are, even those organizations that are, that are working on CVE programs um, are, are forthcoming, at least you know, the, one, the ones that I've been speaking to, are pretty forthcoming about what the risks are of doing that and trying to think about ways to mitigate those risks. And some of them are, um, when you go into a community and you um, say that you're there to counter violent extremism, you're sort of inherently labeling a group of people as potential violent extremists, yeah. and that can create a huge amount of stigmatization. Um, so you know, a lot, of, a lot of organizations are trying to think um, much harder about what it means what their obligation to do no harm means in that kind of context and, and how to be responsible actors when you. You know could come in wanting to to deal with some of these issues of violence, but you know an un- unintended consequence of your work is uh, Sort of highlighting people as as Potentially dangerous to the communities where they're living
0: right? I mean it, it sounds like the difference between someone walking into a high or a program coming into a high school in the United States and saying You group of people are future gang members and what are we gonna do with this besides versus saying? We are here to support at-risk youth by providing programming.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a reasonable mm-hmm. parallel. But so, even calling them at-risk youth might be, you know. Well, so. I, as I was
0: coming out of my mouth, it's like is there even a better yeah. there needs to be a better thing for that because you're predisposing people to think about their future Yeah. in a negative it's like, way. Oh, I'm at yeah. risk.
1: Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, that's one of the the main points is that when you sort of tackle this through a countering violent extremism lens, you're kind of inherently bringing that issue to the table. Like bringing that um, prejudgment to the table. And so what you might do instead um, is, you know, try to build on people's own aspirations and the own, their own sort of uh, civic movements that they have going.
0: How have you seen organizations do that, effectively?
1: Um, <laughs> that's a good question. And actually,
0: before you answer that, for yeah. anyone who's just tuning in, I'm Kate Midden here with senior reporter Michael Igo. We are talking about using development assistance to counter violent extremism.
1: So you're asking for an example of good work being done in the CVE space?
0: Good work being done, but specifically, and to what you just said about it is more effective generally to build on the aspirations of a group of people than to go ahead and box them in as at-risk or possible violent extremists. Yeah. What does that actually look like?
1: I don't know. <laughs> no, I to be honest with you, I'm not sure I, I I don't have a a readily available um example of that. And I think one of the the reasons is well, let me let me sort of back up for a second. There's a criticism of C V E that it's sort of an unnecessary label on things that organizations have been doing for a long time, which is like sort of a broader suite of conflict analysis and peace building work that um, you know, tries to look at sort of a, a nuanced um, and complex set of, of drivers of violence in a community. So I mean, there may, I'm not sure I have a great example of a CVE project that is doing this, like building on people's aspirations instead of um, uh, sort of lab- labeling them as potential extremists and trying to prevent them from going down that route. But what there is, is an entire like body of work that's built up over decades That's called peace building. And so, you know, one of the criticisms of this is that, you know, why do we need to call it countering violent extremism? Why can't we just have these sort of, peace-oriented relationships with communities for which there's an entire you know field already established about how to do that.
0: That also feels like a political question to me. I would imagine that programs that have to do with countering violent extremism in the U.S. would get a lot more funding than yeah, something like peace-building, which may be the same and could even be more effective, but perhaps just sounds a little bit more softball.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, that's exactly it. This is something that, I mean, you go and look at the, um, the latest... Uh, State Department USA joint strategy and goal 1.1 is defeating terrorism, you know, it's not peace building so yeah, I mean it's a a money issue, it's a funding issue
0: Um, speaks to the broader trend within international development of tying development priorities to national security national security
1: interests, yeah, and I mean you know, these organizations are savvy and they also, um, you know, are trying to do good work with limited resources. So you can understand the appeal of, uh, of you know, following CVE opportunities um, where they may lead. Um, but I think the, the question is, you know, why are we funding CVE all of a sudden and in such... Um, um, to such a disproportionate extent when we're not funding peace building which is, you know, perhaps even a better way to uh, accomplish some of the same goals.
0: Something that I would like to dig into a little bit is the point that you raised earlier about you know, for humanitarian organizations who are working on this it's terribly hard. Um, you know, humanitarian organizations by virtue of being humanitarian are charged with being Neutral, impartial, independent, they are not supposed to be working on any on behalf of any political actor, um, and you know squaring that with something like security priorities is, is extremely tricky. Um, some years ago, when I was working in the humanitarian space, the big conversation was, okay, you know, we had the big responses, we had Haiti, we had Ebola, we had Hurricane Matthew, and kind of the rapid onset. Um, Disasters, it's easier to be all of those humanitarian things to meet those principles, but the new norm is conflict Yep um, You know, we started by talking about the bombings in Tanzania and in Kenya, talking about 9-11 And these are really big, extreme examples of violence But conflict is proliferating all over the globe Yeah. How how have you, what have you heard from leaders at humanitarian organizations about how they're squaring kind of their own mandate with responding to these issues?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's such a good question and it's a really live conversation. Um, I think it's important, first of all, to clarify that there are some humanitarian and development organizations that do work on behalf of government clients um, and who don't necessarily think of themselves as neutral and independent. Um, so there's sort of, you know, there are different categories here. And then there are sort of the traditional, um, you know, there's a I'm making a judgment by saying this, but like the principled humanitarian organizations who are independent and neutral, um, many of whom like MSF, you know, aren't taking government money when they can avoid it. Um, So, you know, I think there is a bit of a, you need to be clear which category of organizations you're talking about, because some of them don't ever claim to be neutral and independent in the first place. They're working on behalf of US national security priorities, um, or US foreign policy priorities. There are other organizations that I think um, really are grappling with this. And um, the big question, I think, that's out there is where do you draw these lines between what is appropriate work to be doing and what is work that carries too much risk to be doing. Um, So there, you know, I've spoken to representatives from some organizations that will um, take government money and work in conflict states, but not in ways that they feel are directly linked to kind of U.S. counter-terror efforts or the U.S. global war on terror, whatever you want to call it.
0: So programs that they might be doing, whether or not they got funding from this government, but that happen to align with government priorities?
1: Yes. So, for example, um, doing development projects in Syria that aren't specifically labeled countering violent extremism, but contribute to development outcomes that could lead to greater stability. But, like, figuring out where those lines are is tough.
0: Do we have any kind of or does our industry have any kind of criteria for evaluating that, or is it just kind of a judgment call of these different organizations?
1: Evaluating what falls into sort of a national security project versus a like development project.
0: Yeah, and I guess what, how to evaluate what your own goals are and whether they're just happening to align or whether you are then working on behalf of an organization
1: you're getting right. money from. So I think at this, I think the short answer is no. Like, as an industry, there is no set of guidelines to make those, um, you know, to establish that. I think one of the things that I've been hearing in my reporting is that there's both a strong desire that those guidelines should exist um, and also some pretty interesting efforts to try to create them. And if not sort of official guidelines, then there, you know, there are a few organizations like Safer World, for example, based in the UK, um, that's... That are producing sort of recommendations like things that you should be thinking about if you're considering going into countering violent extremism um, so that you're fully sort of internalizing the potential risks and checking them against your own mission but at this point i think it's a very it's a conversation that's left to organizations to have internally about what they will and will not do and different organizations draw the line in different places
0: What we've been talking about in terms of organizations engaging in this work is that it's not a huge draw for humanitarian organizations, is how we've been talking about it. Looking ahead, do you see CVE being a big, like will there be an explosion in CVE programming that you can foresee or do you think that the industry is still a little bit reticent to really jump into that?
1: So one of the things that I've been trying to find out, I should caveat, I mean this project has focused pretty much on kind of US government um, approaches to countering violent extremism and sort of that um, uh, architecture of organization, organizations that work in conjunction with the US government. Um, so I can't speak to this as sort of an industry-wide thing, but one of the things I've been interested in trying to figure out is um, how the US government is going to incorporate this work into its programming. And I think there's, um, there that is, that conclusion is still evolving. What some people seem seem to think is going to happen is that kind of countering violent extremism outcomes might be mainstreamed across more development programs. So if you're working on an education project um, in a conflict-affected area, um, whereas in the past you might not have been evaluated in terms of contributions to countering violent extremism, that might become a component of that project. Um, or you know the alternative would be that you see big standalone countering violent extremism projects Um, I think those are maybe the two alternative possibilities Um, on the issue of how much funding is going to it it's a really hard thing to pull out Um, one of the you know one of the interesting questions here is like what is what is countering violent extremism as opposed to just a development project operating in a place where there are actors committing political violence, you know? Um, So sort of teasing out those differences is interesting, but it makes the funding picture tricky because something doesn't necessarily need to be labeled countering violent extremism to be sort of working in areas that look like countering violent extremism. The State Department, uh, I'm told, spends somewhere in the ballpark of $100 million on this. But I think the overall amount of funding right now is probably a lot bigger than that if you start to look at sort of where... Issues of violent extremism are mentioned in AID projects, for example.
0: Are we seeing more and more organizations who might bid or might try to get funding from the U.S. government start to tweak their programming to have more of a CBE or national security
1: focus? I mean, anecdotally, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Um, And I mean, this administration in particular has specifically articulated that that's a major priority. So. Um, You know, they need implementers to do it's a it's a Trump administration priority, um, which would usually suggest that it's something that they're going to fund. Um, And so they need implementing partners to do that work. So it's it's not as though um, development organizations are sort of single handedly moving into CVE because they, um, you know, have decided that that makes strategic sense for them. These are organizations, a lot of them that respond to US government priorities.
0: you know a minute ago you kind of distinguished between two kinds of programming. one that would kind of incorporate you know countering and violent extremism goals and indicators and just you know bits of the program across existing development programming. and then the second was kind of a big standalone program. But it strikes me, back to what we were talking about early on in this conversation, that if the root cause of most violent extremism is injustice, and that that is something that is going to be highly context-specific and is not something that you can just say, here are three interventions that are going to fix it. It feels like building in programming, building in pieces of CVE programming to existing community programs, you know, whether that's something like... In a health clinic, if someone starts to, you know, notice that, like, a pediatrician notices that a child that they've been treating forever's behavior starts to change, or starts saying things that could be indicative of kind of going down that route, and then being able to have some system to do something about it, in practice, that kind of feels like a way that would make for better programming, whereas having some kind of big USAID-funded project that walks into a developing country that might have conflict or instability could have the opposite they could achieve the opposite outcome than yeah. what it's looking for um, I'm just throwing these out there as pure yeah I like mean, speculation, but is that I don't know is that right
1: I, I mean I'm <laughs> not that, you know I'm not on the the inside of, of uh, the conversations on designing these projects, but I think what you're speaking to is something that I've heard which is sort of the the difference between Um, A kind of approaching a community from a a holistic place and um, you know doing a conflict context um, specific assessment of you know the political and um, social drivers of conflict in a place and figuring out you know what that means for um, for the people who live there and and how to make meaningful change in their lives versus, um, you know, I, I think maybe part of your objection to the kind of just streamlined or stovepiped piped um, CVE project approach is in line with what people say that it's just sort of, it's breaking off one piece of the issues that people are dealing with um, and trying to sort of apply kind of a technocratic fix to that one piece uh, without addressing these issues of of sort of justice and social cohesion that are that are ultimately um defining that context, so you know i don't know exactly how that how that um distinction would translate into program design and which would be better or worse. There have certainly been some projects that are pretty much you know c v e projects a lot of them have to do with uh counter messaging has been a really popular thing, so you start to see you know. How extremist groups are using Facebook, social media stuff, um, and then you look for people who can carry messages to counter that um, and sort of amplify their voices. I mean, those are CVE projects. They might be doing some other stuff as well, but um, and I, you know, I think those who implement them um, point to some success. Um, certainly, also acknowledge that there have been limitations to that kind of work. Um, I don't know. I, my guess is that you'll you'll continue to see kind of both standalone CVE projects and also maybe a, a growing emphasis on CVE outcomes in other development projects.
0: Sure. So we are about out of time. Can you give everyone a sense of what you're looking at in your reporting moving forward? Yeah, because your story this to. week was one of a three-part series.
1: That's right. Uh, at least three parts.
0: Okay. What's next?
1: <laughs> so... Um, Our conversation has been really helpful because it's sort of in line with uh, how this is going to develop. So I'm really going to, on the next couple of pieces, I'm going to dig into the evidence base that's starting to evolve around this work um, and to, you know, kind of ask some of these questions about, you know, what have we done in the past? What have been the outcomes and, you know, results of that? What are we learning about, you know, what are the drivers of, of political violence and what are the interventions that can help to stem it? So really getting into some of the research that's been done. That'll be a piece of it. Um, and then the, you know, the other big component of this, also in keeping with our conversation today, um, is a deeper dive into some of these issues of risk, particularly the risk of um, developments and humanitarian organizations associating more closely with national security and military objectives and kind of how they're weighing that, um, those decisions.
0: Excellent, looking forward to reading. Michael Igo, thank you so much for joining us. You can follow pleasure. you can follow Michael at Alter Igo on Twitter for the latest. Also on DevX.com. Thank you so much for joining us at home, and we will see you next week. Can I ask you to hit the finish button? <laughs>